0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, tsleil and Coquitlam peoples.
1: British Columbia,
0: I've seen your mountains high, Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, Watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, To me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend, Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is June 23rd, 2022, and this is episode 295. I'm Star Lundaboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On tonight's show, we're recording late in the evening, the museum is off the table once again, and we have a special interview with Open Media about Bill C-11. First, thank you to the patrons who help keep this 100% CanCon show funded. At least we'll figure it out today if we are CanCon, or if for some technical reason we're not, could be a problem. Go to patreon.com slash politicos to support the show. Let's start with the big story BC politics wise this week. It's John Horgan's press conference on Wednesday where he said, whoopsies, I see you're all pissed. Change my mind. We're going to hit pause on that museum redevelopment. Talk to some more people. Didn't mean to piss you all off.
2: In other words, they decided to stop just bleeding all over the place and uh, patch their wounds and try and uh, try and not hand the liberals an easy win on this one. Like politically, the thing had, it was rocky from the start and they were just taking hit after hit pretty much every time anyone found out their project, whether it was schools or other things weren't being funded the way they thought or some funding didn't come through elsewhere. the museum just came up time and time again, and it was really one of these things that was starting to take a toll just from how persistent it was. So it, it smart politics on their part to stop the bleeding on this one.
0: I don't disagree on the politics side. If they didn't have an effective channel change, pause it, figure it out. On the policy side, this is incredibly frustrating because it's not like it's going to get cheaper to do. The plan that they worked with was not like out of nowhere. It had been in the works for a while and the price tag might not have been public until recently, but this was the plan and there weren't many cheaper plans.
2: Even the replacement part was not all that well publicized. A lot of the stuff that had come out around the consultations was future of the museum stuff. How do we imagine and redo the exhibits for the era of reconciliation The actual, we're going to do a massive capital project on this stuff, it may have been in there, but it was not front and center of how the government had talked about this before the big announcement, and the whole thing has been a case study in how not to do comms on a big project, and that was just one piece of that.
0: Yeah, so it's paused now, and they have to go back to the consultation boards, the Which is going to take time. So, even if they come back to the same thing but have better buy in, the construction and capital costs are going to go up. The maintaining it for a few years is going to cost money. So, in that sense, it's going to cost more. So, we're either going to get less museum in a longer amount of time or we're going to spend more to get probably also still less. And the other thing that incredibly frustrates me here is it's not like this makes money magically appear. The schools that aren't getting money aren't getting money now still the other ones that are going like nothing has changed other than we don't get a museum
2: there wasn't anything on this year's capital budget for the museum really but it will free up money over the next eight years on the capital budgets there that can be actually reallocated to pressing needs
0: except they need to deal with the museum so at some point it needs to be on the list like no yeah one-
2: but it how you sequence the stuff does matter. And if you're not doing a museum in 2023, that means you can use the, hundred, the first hundred million or whatever the breakdown on it was to, I don't know, go seismically upgrade some schools or something.
0: So, drop the partisanship consideration for a second, Scott. Do you think this is the right policy move?
2: I It is so hard to separate this out from the politics of it, but it is a big price tag, and I think Taking a careful second look at it wouldn't go amiss. I think it is worth seriously looking at whether or not a it made sense to locate it on a different site, proximate to downtown, whether there's better ways to stage this and sequence
0: it. So, to be clear not- with the announcement, they are still going ahead with the smaller element, the overflow Place collections that building. Colwood,
2: that's, yeah, going to yeah. take some of the stuff and allow, will allow them to get the pieces that are currently stored below seat level out of the basement of the museum
0: good <laughs> that part is definitely good it'll still cost money and
2: yeah and the other potential if they do end up revisiting this and alter the plans and oh, maybe find an alternate site in inventory to place this That would also mean you could, in theory, keep the museum open. And that's, I think, the other thing. Like, the price tag was the big thing that caught everyone's eye. But it would be unfortunate not to have a provincial museum for eight years. And yeah, there were plans to send some of the exhibits around a bit. But they weren't going to be able to do that with everything. And there is something to be said for having it all in one place. And I'm hopeful they can find a way to do this a little more cost effectively, maybe uh, locate a second site where they can actually do this and basically stage it in a way that limits the amount of time that's not a museum open. There are some parking lots down by the waterfront in Victoria. Those sites aren't quite as big, but in theory you could go up to offset that a bit. It's worth exploring, I think, and we'll have to see whether they do.
0: On the other side of the aisle, the Liberals and Greens have both in different ways thanked the government for making this, but the Liberals are painting it as a flip-flop and the Greens are like thankful that it's been cancelled, but also still trying to call out the approach and saying the Greens messaging has been a little bit all over the place. I think the big focus they've tried to do is that this didn't support all Indigenous nations, even though many of the ones on the territories that the museum is located, were bought in on this. How have you rated the opposition's reaction?
2: I'm never a super big fan of the flip-flopping, particularly in this case, when it is very clear that they were responding to public pressure. The, I think, better line of attack is always, you shouldn't have done this in the first place, we were right from day one when we told you this was a bad idea. At least you finally see the light, but it shouldn't have taken you this long to get there, rather than you guys shouldn't have changed your minds.
0: Yeah, the Liberals had some pretty, like, (laughs) sour-level tweets going out about this.
2: Ultimately, it's not going to be a big thing one way or the other, because, okay, they've stopped the bleeding. The, The parties are wanting to get their final shots in, but... No, nobody remembers the final dunk when a big project gets canceled. So, it's going to be white noise to everyone in a day's time, and nobody outside the Victoria bubble is going to really catch that little bit right there.
0: I guess what would be interesting to see from the opposition is a different plan. Like I keep bringing it back to the museum does need to be dealt with at some point. It can't just sit in its current state. You outlined some ideas there. I want to know what the opposition thinks. I know the Greens have talked about the repatriation, prioritizing the repatriation of Indigenous artifacts. I think that's a valuable contribution to the debate. What would the Liberals do? That's been the question for I want to say five years, but it actually predates the 2017 election, even because we didn't really know what they would do, other than just keep being government. That's not true. Sorry, in 2020, they said they'd kill the PST for a year.
2: Yeah, in this case, they don't. They haven't really put forward an alternative, which you know is one of the benefits of being in opposition, and also one of the drawbacks is that you don't have access to the same public service staff to review this stuff in detail and provide ideas. Politically, I don't think they actually have to have an answer for the question until it the parts of the museum start falling off. It, it happened here in Vancouver with the uh, the side of the Aquatic Center, but I politically, they actually don't really have to answer the question or even have much of a plan until at least the next election, and even then, they'll probably just stick with the, well, we're opposed to the NDP's plan on it.
0: I guess they can take the. We don't want to build a 10 lane bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel option. And the. Yeah, like the NDP ran on. Which the NDP took, and then they have studied it after and came up with a bigger tunnel. And to be fair, the Massey Tunnel is not in great shape, or <laughs> was not in great shape. I guess a pause in the debate over the museum it hopefully won't come back as viciously in the future because this all feels dumb I mean, <laughs> <in the> end.
1: <laughs>
2: when this does come around, there will no doubt be another round of th- this though. Hopefully whoever is government at that time will have learned the lessons from this debacle and properly communicate on it and actually not shock british columbians with a sudden announcement on it
0: yeah i I just want to live in a society where people are willing to pay for things that aren't bad (laughs) but we don't also it's the ndp's fault for shit in the bed like you say on the comms on this but hopefully everyone learned something i don't think anyone did though joining us for our feature interview today is Matt Hatfield, Campaigns Director for Open Media. Matt, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. So can you first give us a little bit of a background on who Open Media is? I think some people will have heard of you, probably signed one of your petitions, but what actually is it?
1: Yeah, so we're a grassroots advocacy organization. We have about 325,000 members currently. And we work on various internet-related issues, basically keeping the internet open, accessible, and surveillance-free. And so we campaign primarily in Canada, a little bit in the U.S., but we're, we're all about trying to make the internet a better place for ordinary people.
2: Right. We brought you on tonight to talk about Bill C-11, which is probably been, I think, the biggest and highest profile bill going through the House of Commons right now. So can you give us kind of a background on what the bill is and what problem it is in theory trying to solve?
1: Yeah, so Bill C-11 is called the Online Streaming Act. It's the successor to Bill C-10, which was a bill that was originally proposed last year by the previous House. And the core idea is extending the broadcasting rules that apply to all offline audiovisual content in Canada. Things like radio, television, all of those rules are being extended in one way or another to internet audiovisual content. So the CRDC for 20 plus years has decided not to try to regulate the internet that way. And all of a sudden, they are going to be stepping in a big way to regulate the internet in many of the same ways. And I guess the challenge there should be fairly apparent
0: immediately. Like one of the reasons, as I understand it, for the CRTC approach was that broadcast airwaves are limited. There's a finite number of channels we can have because of the frequencies. There's a finite number of radio stations. And so you inherently need some kind of regulatory regime to say, all right, you get to be a radio station and you don't get to be. And then there's the whole legacy about CanCon and trying to protect Canadian culture from the American influence. And whether you agree with it or not, it it makes sense. But I think you
1: would say that the internet is different. Very different. Your summary is exactly right. So under the old system, no one had any real choice about what was going to be aired besides these big companies. And it was very cheap for them to license content from primarily the U.S. market and resell it here. And there was a feeling that if we just left things up to these companies, we would just be drowned in American culture. There'd be no space for Canadian creators. That is absolutely not how the internet works. There's a lot of Canadian creators who do very well for themselves on modern internet platforms. So this is an awkward moment where the legacy Canadian CanCon system is stepping in and saying, hey, we want a piece of this pie we want to get this revenue that's going to internet platforms. And a lot of Canadian creators working on internet platforms are firstly just becoming aware really what this could mean for them, but really shocked and concerned about what this will mean in terms of their success, largely with global audiences. A lot of Canadian creators are very popular in the rest of the world.
2: So this bill sounds like it's trying to basically take a 20th century approach to media regulation and apply it in the 21st century. How would that actually affect the, the 21st century media going forward on this?
1: Yeah, so there's short term and longer term consequences. And there's consequences for you and I as users and consequences for creators as well. So in the short term, I think the effects people might see within the next couple of years is a real change in the feeds and search results we have online. So a major priority the CRTC has here is they want to make a traditional CanCon more discoverable. By which they mean they want to edit algorithms and search results to insert a bunch of that content in there and functionally lead to deprioritization, lowering the appearance of other content. very up in the air what that's actually going to look like. The CRTC has confirmed to the Senate just recently that it is absolutely their objective and they expect to do it by requiring platforms to make changes to their algorithms to accomplish it it might eventually get better if they fix the CanCon standard to include all Canadian creators, not just the legacy creators. But there's absolutely no confidence that they're going to do that because this legislation originally really comes from legacy media pushing for it. It's not something that online creators really want. Maybe talk a bit more about that, right? Because we talked about the official line of the
0: bill, trying to create balance between the approach taken online and offline. And I know you you can't know the mind of our Heritage minister, any and any of that, but it seems like it's pretty obvious who wants this bill and why we're getting it in this way. So, you talk about the legacy channels and creators. Name
1: names (laughs) if you can. (laughs) Who Uh, actually is benefiting from this? Yeah, it's anyone who qualifies for the current traditional CanCon system might have an interest. And people, most people probably don't deal with the CanCon system. It's, it's a point-based system that was last updated in the 1980s, and it has a very rough correlation to what we might consider actual Canadian content. So people pointed out that things like The Handmaid's Tale, written by Margaret Atwood, shot in Canada, does not qualify as CanCon under the system. Some pretty shocking things have been found to qualify as CanCon under the system. Things like documentaries on the English Tudor royal family. There was even a documentary on President Trump that somehow snuck its way into the CanCon system. So the current system is very broken. But a lot of folk who've done well under that want that system to continue. And it's particularly popular in Quebec, where there is a feeling that French language is under siege, and the CanCon system is one of the main sort of bulwarks to protect it from the big bad external world.
2: So what would traditional media get from this that non-traditional media would not? Like, what's the actual CanCon
1: benefits that they will see? It's money. This is all about money, and the rest comes after. It's a little bit about promotion as well, and that's where manipulating our feed comes in. And that's part of where we're concerned about the impact. I think if, if we were going to say, as we proposed, online streaming platforms earning a lot of revenue in Canada should spend a portion of that revenue on Canadian creator content, sure, fine, great. As long as we can be fair about who's a Canadian creator, let's do that. But that is not how things look like they may go. A lot is being left in the hands of the CRTC to determine. Under the current system, it would essentially be taking from the internet and reallocating that content primarily to creators who I wouldn't say feel especially comfortable with how the internet works, not people who've leapt in with both feet and figured out how to succeed on those platforms. So one of the other big criticisms and challenges
0: with this approach I've heard is this focus around whether or not user-generated content is captured. And the idea of, even very selfishly, do amateurs, semi-amateur small podcasts like ours qualify? And what amount of onus are we suddenly under or penalty do we possibly face in this regime?
1: Oh, yeah, you're broadcasters. Any audiovisual content that earns revenue can be considered under this bill as broadcasting content. The CRTC has confirmed that, even though the government has said a number of times that they don't think it's true. The CRTC are the ones doing this job and they think you're very much in. Now, what obligations they, they would impose on you folks specifically is to be determined. The government has promised a policy direction in which they say they're going to put a few guardrails on what the CRTC should do. But policy directions are not legislation. A policy direction can be changed at any time. We've seen a recent change in policy direction on the telecom side. It's something that can just be a sudden pivot of government. This government could change their mind about what they do. A future government could certainly change their mind about what they do. User content is very clearly included in this, particularly any user content associated in any way with revenue, associated with music, which if you look at TikTok, basically everything, it's all within scope. And it's a bit of a, an open door that even if truly no one in government or the CRTC today has massive censorship intentions, We're leaving the legal door open where it's not obvious that a future government couldn't decide, oh, like, this particular thing that's going around on TikTok is misinformation. We need to say that the CRTC needs to step in and start requiring TikTok to remove it.
2: So for the user generated content that's in there, that would be like YouTubers, TikTok, all that. What sort of actions could the CRTC in theory take against them? Are we talking removal from platforms? Are we talking just they don't get the money that's sloshing around? What's the worst case scenario on this?
1: The worst case scenario could get pretty bad. I don't want to go straight to the worst case scenario because I don't think we're going to start necessarily with the worst case scenario. But in terms of consequences for not behaving, it could involve very significant fines. It's not clear that any creators working with YouTube or TikTok or any of these major platforms will be able to apply for any of the CanCon funding being drawn here which is why I say that it could be taking from the internet, but not giving back to the internet, just putting that back into legacy media. And I should also say there's a real risk that some platforms might just leave Canada. People have been saying that for a while. And early on, maybe some people thought that was a bit extreme. But we, I'm actually astonished. I really thought they would put an amendment in to limit limit it to platforms above a certain revenue threshold. And they've just refused to do that which is crazy. So any number of streaming platforms that do almost no business in Canada, if they're being consumed by certain communities, and maybe very important to some newcomer communities or communities of particular cultural backgrounds, they might find their streaming platforms suddenly asked to, where's your CanCon? Are you paying into the CanCon system? And I'm a small platform in a distant country, I'm just going to say, to heck with this. I'm blocking Canada. I don't want to participate in that, which is an awful outcome, right? Like it's terrible for the people affected. It does nothing to advance CanCon. We're pretty concerned we may see some of that in the next couple of years as well.
0: You've been speaking out on this. We've seen a number of headlines talking about YouTubers showing up at Parliament. The Conservatives have been up in arms at this. And that almost seems to work against them. The Conservatives go so partisan at times that it almost feels to me that it it hurts their cause among non-conservatives but do you see this as a partisan issue i don't
1: like i don't but can you talk about that angle like it didn't need to be but it's become very partisan unfortunately the liberal government has been extremely aggressive in how they've characterized critics of this legislation unfortunately on a number of issues recently they have felt that if you disagree with them you're spreading misinformation and you're a bad faith actor and all this stuff It's apparently not acceptable in their view to just have a different vision of what's good for Canada's internet. And I think some Conservative MPs have spoken extremely well to the issues here. Others have chosen to make it a little bit more of a partisan back and forth game. I'm very disappointed in the NDP because I think they do appreciate some of the issues here. But for their own reasons, making peace with the Liberals have decided not to cause more of a fuss here. I did see that the Green MP voted against the bill when it passed through government, and I appreciate that. It really should not be falling on party lines, but unfortunately, things in Canada often do.
2: So you brought up the misinformation accusations that the government is making around that. But under this bill they're proposing, would they actually have the power to block stuff that is perceived as misinformation, and who would actually be able to do that? Like, would we be get into a situation where either... Justin Trudeau or Pierre Polyev or or one of their ministers would be able to influence what gets seen by Canadians and what gets expressed with user-generated content?
1: They're definitely influencing what gets seen by us in the short term in the sense that they will be tweaking feeds and playlists. And I don't think in the short term that's going to be to politicize our feeds and playlists search results. It's going to be to make them really boring. It's going to be to fill them with legacy CanCon content that if I'm searching for some obscure global interest is absolutely not what I'm looking for. I think the concern is maybe less that the direct intention of this bill is to censor and remove misinformation so much as it opening a very broad power and the CRTC having inherently incredibly broad powers like broadcasting regulation is super broad because it does come from this era where there weren't a lot of other options. And if the CRTC wasn't stepping in, it wasn't like you or I or anyone in Canada was going to get to make any choices about what happened in those spaces. So it's really, we don't think it makes sense to be regulating the internet under broadcasting regulation whatsoever. It's just a poor approach. But given that they've taken this approach, I think the, the longer term concern around misinformation is just, could these powers be used in the future for those intentions? And I should say the Liberal government has had some pretty loose talk about online harms and which ones they're taking up under which legislation. People, some people might know of a real big alarm bell that us and a number of other groups, civil liberty liberty groups and other groups raised last year around the government's initial plans for regulating harmful content online, which were just way, way out of line amongst the worst that's been proposed by any democratic governments. And they've stepped back a little bit from that and are just finished up an expert panel working on what version two of that might look like. We'll know more soon. But in proposing that legislation, even though that legislation itself was not about misinformation, never mentioned misinformation, as they were selling it to Canadians, they would often bring up misinformation and the need to contain misinformation, which raises questions about are they passing or proposing legislation in some cases with the intent of eventually bringing it around to addressing what they see as misinformation. That's been one of the most frustrating
0: parts of the debate around this bill and the previous incarnation of it is just seemingly trying to get straight answers out of the government on what their bills do which are then seemingly contradicted by the literal text of the bill at some time at points like it's been double speak either intentional or they're just bad at legislation i i'm not going to ask you to speculate on
1: that but <sighs> I think there's some intentional misinformation. And I think there's some liberal MPs genuinely don't understand what they're talking about. People have been complaining for decades about legislators who don't really get the internet. And there's a bit of that happening too, I think. But certainly misinformation is something we all hate, and we all disagree about what it is. And the government is the last body that should be empowered to make those kind of decisions, because the temptation to politicize it or to even unintentionally see it as misinformation as things that are against what we're trying to accomplish is very high. I had one – so, one last question
0: I have around the substance of this is we've talked about the challenge and how the problems of government coming in on this, but I think one of the things that might make people sympathetic to this kind of approach is it's not like the social media giants are a particularly good guy in the situation, right? For many different reasons, the number of headlines condemning Facebook, Twitter, Google over the last number of years – We don't need to rehash. You talked a bit about a lot of the smaller content platforms that are out there and how this affects them. But what's the role? Like, clearly, Facebook is eager to just play ball because they want to make money wherever they are. Like, what is the role of trying to make sure maybe like maybe it's a bigger question of like, how do we make them suck less? (laughs)
1: That's a huge question. This
0: isn't it, is it? I guess, in this
1: context. No, this is definitely not it. That's a complex problem that every country is struggling with right now. They are not the good guys. They're not always the bad guys either. But they're commercial entities who have a tremendous amount of power and data about us and over us. And we need to change that. So there are things the government could be doing to redress the balance between us as individual citizens and these giant platforms that hold so much of our lives in their hands. Some of which... They're maybe doing a lot of which they just don't care to things like giving us much more control of our data, more of an ability to take our data from one platform to another very easily, making it incredibly easy to both see what data a platform holds on me, choose to edit or delete it, or even to edit, edit our parameters on these platforms more. One of the things I've said to policymakers, and it's just too far out of the box for them. But if you have a problem with the algorithms on some of these streaming platforms, hey, I do too why don't you require they be more transparent in how those algorithms work and give us as users more ability to tweak them and upgrade and downgrade our own things? If I want all CanCon all the time, give me that power, but don't force it on me. The issue I see is that uh, the relationship between internet platforms and people is just tilted further and further towards these mega companies. But tilting everything towards government instead of the mega companies is not the solution. And government, unfortunately, is often too too happy to step in here and say, Hey, we get you have so much control and sway over people. Maybe we could have a piece of that too, which is a terrible angle for this to go.
2: If people are concerned that it's a terrible angle for this to go. How do they get involved or do to make their voices heard on this?
1: It's exactly that. You got to get reach out to your MPs. If you re- visit openmedia.org, we have active petitions on Bill C-11. We've got stuff coming up on harmful Content, Bill C-18, the news bill you can go with our sample wordings, you can add your own words, or just completely disagree with us. I would much prefer that people be speaking to their politicians and sharing whatever is important to them, than that they not participate. They do get these messages, it does matter to them. It's not like it doesn't change things overnight. But when MPs talk to us, and they know they've gotten 2000 messages in the last week, it's a very different conversation than when they think they're just talking to me. Thank you so much for your time on this, Matt. I
0: I think that was very useful. We're definitely gonna have to have you back to talk about online harms to talk about the news bill and all of that kind of stuff, because those are also fascinating for us. But in the meantime, if people wanted to follow you on social media and get your takes, where can they find? you? Sure,
1: I'm a big Twitter user as is open media. So at open media org, you can find the organization. And uh, you're probably best off finding me from the feed. I've done that silly thing where I've made my Twitter name complicated, but it is Matt H-T-F-I-L-D, I I believe, on Twitter. I should probably simplify that. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Thanks very much, you too.
0: Moving on to quick takes. Let's start with a roundup of stories like a flurry of stories that happened in the last like 24 hours, 36 hours all on Michelle Rempel-Garner. First up, it's announced that Sean Schnell, who was the campaign manager for Patrick Brown, had quit his campaign to go help lead a Michelle Rempel-Garner campaign for the UCP leadership in Alberta. That seemed like a pretty big move.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if we mentioned this on the last pod or not, that Michelle Rempel-Garner was stepping back from her position as chair of the Patrick Brown campaign to explore the option of running with the UCP leadership. And yeah, then this past couple days, the campaign manager for Brown joined her on that.
0: And then we get a leaked story that she might not be eligible for running for UCP leadership because she didn't have a party membership card for the last six months. But she was granted the special permission to run. Oh,
2: that did actually come through. Uh,
0: yes, it's in her letter. She notes that there was some opposition within caucus to that, but she did get the approval.
2: It made sense. Yeah, it's not great for him to not have the the membership for the requisite amount of time, but those rules are in place. You don't have someone coming completely out of left field, the stealth NDPer who's just there to make trouble or whatever. But like, her bona fides as a conservative being a sitting conservative mp are not really in question or shouldn't really be although we may get to that in a moment
0: but and when you spend half of your time in oklahoma maybe you've let some things lapse by accident
2: yeah maybe the renewal notice was sitting was sent to her place in alberta and they just haven't checked the mail for six months
0: nevertheless she announced uh, that she's not going to seek the leadership. She put out a long essay on her Substack, And rather than do the stereotypical, I discussed it with my family. And for personal reasons, we decided now is not the time. No, she goes and basically slams it in delicate words as a chaotic band of misfits who no one in their right mind would want to lead and what a disaster it's going to be to try to pull that together before the election next year. And she does not want to do that. She says it much more kindly to the party than that. But that was the impression I took from reading through what she wrote about the caucus there.
2: I mean, I'm not sure I can necessarily fault her analysis. Maybe a little impolite to say as, a potent, as someone who was considering running for the position and was still a politician in the... Cons- Conservative politician in Alberta, but yeah, there's not been pretty much any good news story about the UCP for at least six months, if not longer, arguably for the last two, three years, but definitely in the last little bit as they've been fighting around their leadership battles and the ouster of Jason Canny and the inability to manage to hold the. More rural, more COVID policy skeptical part of the caucus, in with the the more mainstream part of the caucus, and just that whole dynamic has clearly makes the thing a challenge to hold together, and it would it would take quite the political leader and talented politician to make that work, and. Michelle Rumpel-Garner has her has her benefit and has her own set of skills in this, but I'm not necessarily sure that she's wrong to take a look at that and say, yeah, this is probably not the task for me, trying to hold that motley crew in- together as they go into the an election.
0: And to her defense, the way she frames it, I was a bit glib. She does highlight that like she frames it around there's a lot of harm and hurt that's happened within that caucus, and her having not been a member of it or even in even a member of the party, it's would be incredibly hard for her to come as an outsider and try to rally that. And that's not to say anyone inside the party is necessarily better equipped to bring it together, fact, but might- there's at least some depth of relationship there that they could work from that she doesn't necessarily have.
2: Let's assume that uh, relationship hasn't been strained by the ongoing fights within the caucus. So... <laughs> Yeah, having an outsider come in has its problems for sure, but I don't know, after watching the Kenny and the anti-Kenny camp duke it out, maybe someone who isn't coded as being on one side of that or not is what they actually need. And In that case, uh, Rambler-Garden would actually be a decent choice there, but yeah, it's a tough... Keeping conservative coalitions together is a tough job in Canada, and... Seems like the Alberta one in particular is struggling on that right now.
0: I'll come back to that, which coding she might have in a second. But like Council, which is a polling firm in Alberta, did do a poll and found that the UCP under her would lead the NDP 41 to 40 versus if they kept Kenny around, it would be a 42 to 37 route by the NDP. But I think like the bigger question is you have the overt official reason she has said for not running, but maybe the quiet one is she's just willing to bide her time. She's not that old. She can wait for the UCP to just fully implode, continue the trajectory they're on, whether they do well in this election or not, it doesn't matter. Once they have got reached a point where they seem like they're more serious about coming together and winning, she could come back in the next leadership race and try then. But this one, huh. Don't waste your time.
2: Perhaps. Though the way, maybe Alberta's a little different, but like the way a lot of these have shaken out is that the person who comes in after they lose ends up just losing the next selection because it typically takes a couple cycles to unseat a government. And yeah, maybe she wants to wait eight years before running for premier, but it's always a bit of a gamble when it comes to that, and... I'll show you. You take the for sure premier now and potentially winning in. Was it next? When is the Alberta election?
0: Next spring, yeah, I believe. Next
2: spring. Yeah, so you get. You are locked in for nearly a year as premier, potentially control a snap election at an ideal time before the uh, opposition has a chance to define f- the new leader. And uh, yeah, get another four years. Out. Or take the gamble that whoever wins that next loses the subsequent election and then you come back in four or eight years to try and challenge it it's not necessarily as good a good a deal when you look at it that way
0: so finally on Rempel garner on which side i think she's on she's not an unknown quantity in conservative party politics or the- even
2: the general like she's one of the more high profile conservative mps uh back in late harper year she did a lot of the the we need a MP to go out and do a media hit on the Ottawa news shows and whatnot. And I think she annoyed a lot of non-conservatives with how she approached that. But she is definitely a established brand and known quantity both inside and outside the CPC.
0: Yeah, and it turns out she's annoyed a lot of conservative MP- MPs as well. As a Toronto Star piece is out this evening talking about how some of the statements she's made in the past few months criticizing very controversial things like white replacement theory, saying it's bad, saying that welcoming the convoy is not a good thing for politicians to do and to be seen to be doing. These were taken as offensive by some of the party members, especially those loyal to Pierre Polyev. And I guess they decided to try to Reform Act petition her out of the party Caucus, but that movement failed as soon as she caught some wind of it. But that's wild to hear the free speech group trying to censor her for her positions on their party.
2: Yeah, that's a the reformat thing's pretty wild. So I the pushback, I can at least understand where it's coming from. There's definitely a view within conservative circles that conservatives should not be repeating the liberals' attack lines against fellow conservatives, and that actually, from a perspective of the fact that politics and partisan politics is a team sport, and like you you want to be directing your fire outwards, not inwards, that kind of made sense, but it also means that they don't necessarily have the best and most functional ability to kind of take in appropriate criticisms around some of the social issues that sometimes they actually need to hear it, particularly in this case uh, around the freedom convoy stuff uh, it's one of the like the long standing dysfunctions of the conservative party and i think particularly in these days where there's kind of a little more of a siege mentality than there existed before even though there was quite a one in earlier days for sure but yeah, in these situations, it, it would definitely rub Conservative MPs the wrong way on some of that, but going as far as to try and reformat someone out of the party is just a wild overreaction to that. That's the sort of thing you're supposed to settle in caucus and not spill out into, the, uh, into having it reported in the store.
0: Fun times for the Conservative Party. Tell me about RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, Scott.
2: Yeah, so this is the other big news out of this week, is we have a new brewing scandal with the Trudeau government. So this relates to the mass shooting in Nova Scotia in 2020. And earlier this week, uh, new allegations came out. This was revealed during the Mass Casualty Commission that has been appointed and is currently investigating how the the RCMP handled the situation. And
0: there. it's just a dumpster fire all around, both there's the inquiry and the RCMP's handling.
2: Yeah, there's been a lot of bad he- headlines coming out for the RCMP on this one. In this case, bad headlines on the Trudeau government, it may actually be the thing where the big public takeaway doesn't end up being about how the RCMP handled it so much as how the PMO handled it, which... Might not be ideal, but if they did act improperly here, it it actually is pretty important that there would be a public reckoning on it. So specifically, the allegation in question here is that the Prime Minister's office inappropriately interfered with the investigation so that they could get the information about which firearms were used out in the public so they could then basically capitalize on that for political reasons to announce new gun control measures and that they pressured commissioner lucky who in turn uh, pressured the detachment h the nova scotia rcmp to release the, that information before they were ready to sorry not de- detachment h, h division so these comes from the notes of an rcmp supervisor who made contemporaneous notes and was testifying at the commission. and Basically, shortly after the shooting, Superintendent Darren Campbell gave the press conference, didn't release any of the firearms details, told reporters he couldn't get into it because the investigation is still active and ongoing, except to confirm that several semi-automatic handguns and rifles were used. This was because it was believed that the guns were smuggled in from the U.S. and there was a active cross-border investigation going on to determine how and why that happened and to prosecute on that. After that press conference, he was summoned to a conference call with the commissioner who basically re- expressed strong dissatisfaction and with them not announcing it and that they had the commissioner said that she'd promised the Minister of Public Safety and the Prime Minister's office that the uh, the RCMP would release this information.
0: So, Trudeau denies pressuring the RCMP, but that doesn't mean much to me. This story just is bad all around. It feels like Commissioner Lucky should probably be looking at an exit strategy from her position at some point in the next few years it highlights the problem with having the RCMP period. Trudeau would not have a hotline to the head of the OP in the same way. Not to say that the OPP are without their problems, but having that like confusion over, are they provincial police doing the thing police are supposed to do? Or are they a federal agency?
2: Yeah, not only that. There's also the uh, the fact that during the Ottawa protests where it was becoming apparent that the stronger action needed to be taken. The Prime Minister's view on that was that the politicians, they don't order the police around. The police are independent, and it's not a great look when they have to enact an emergencies act because they didn't want to order the police to do something, but had no problem ordering the police to do something when it was so they could politically gain from doing so. It's a bad look, and there's like... Yeah, the Trudeau government denies it, but it's not a particularly plausible denial because it maybe it didn't happen, maybe it did happen, maybe it didn't happen. But you can definitely see the Trudeau government doing this. There, there are echoes of the uh, the mentality that we saw during SNC-Lavalin, in this. Like
0: maybe, it, maybe Jerry Butts called them, <laughs> even though he's not officially in the PMO. Yeah. It's all on him.
2: Like it, yeah, it rhymes with that in a way that it makes it all a very liberal scandal. So yeah, the fallout from this is still to be determined, but no doubt we'll be talking about this over the summer as more details emerge. Oh, and one, one other note. So this was the event that preceded the... 2020 order and council ban that banned 10 different version or 10 different semi-automatics and their variants of note, two of the firearms that were on the ban list were the ones that were used despite that information having not been released publicly could be related because they had the information before it was made public and that they pressured the RCMP commissioner to get them that alternative, could be a bit of a coincidence particularly the mini 14 that had been used in uh the Ecole polytechnic shooting so i could see that getting included on the list regardless but it's still one of these things that raises an eyebrow so yeah we'll have to see where that goes but it's n- not a great look and yet another sign that the trudeau government may be in trouble
0: looking north in the country we've announced a billion, $4.9 billion, let's be accurate here, investment in NORAD defenses over the next six years. This is new money not mentioned in the budget as far as I can tell. So, we just, as you do, scrape together another $5 billion to spend to replace the Northern Warning System.
2: Yeah, so this is in theory, part of a 20-year up plan, that's going to be $40 billion in total, though at this moment they've only committed the first $5 billion over the first six years. So, the Northern Warning Systems, the network of radar sites across the north, that replaced the rather famous dew line. The system was built in the 80s, and they're looking to upgrade that to deal with the modern threats related to modern cruise and hypersonic missiles. They're also going to be a new sensor network, codenamed Crossbow, but no details were provided about what that sensor network that's going to be deployed in the Arctic is going to be as it's classified, as well as there's going to be a new space-based surveillance system that the government's investing in. Star Wars. (laughs) This isn't...
0: No, it doesn't shoot missiles down. Doesn't shoot missiles down.
2: Although there was speculation following this. Is this a prelude to us joining the Americans' anti-ballistic missile program? There's so far no indication of that, but that, that does seem to be the speculation whenever we announce a new NORAD investment. Th- these are, in my opinion, good upgrades that the systems are pretty old. Russia and China in particular have been investing quite a bit of resources into developing new missile technologies, adjusting our warning systems to respond to that. A, a pretty prudent course of action, and if you look at we we don't have a great and particularly coherent defense strategy within Canada, but
0: I which think, is a great time to be spending five billion dollars. Well, I was just going
2: to say, but like any serious look at this, would obviously put the defense of Canada as the top priority with within any uh, such strategy on that, and we do have the benefit of being in a geographically pretty defensible position with oceans and an arctic between us and potential adversaries and that means that if you're going to be investing money the navy and the air force and the warning systems around the perimeter of the country are probably should be top of list on that so Upgrading these old 40-plus-year-old systems all make a lot of sense on that, particularly as the Arctic warms and is going to become more accessible in the future.
0: Yeah. Dropping billions of dollars on missile defense is fine. Spending a few hundred million on a museum is obscene. Different pots of money. (laughs) Different governments, for sure. (laughs) Finally, a weird report dug out of an access to information request from a branch of international and global affairs that was developed by the liberals the rapid response mechanism canada
2: i'd not looked, heard of it until
0: this right yeah i had to look up to make sure it's a real thing
2: yeah when i first I like, saw this i was like okay this, so the reason i played this is because the conservatives have been making a fuss about this ever since the election but there wasn't really anything to go on about it beyond the conservatives complaining about it, it.
0: so this, it being the idea that china's trying to interfere in our elections
2: yeah so this is the first like real third party go- or non-political party confirmation of this and this is from a government agency, which is why I wanted to flag it. but yeah, the uh, this was a branch that I had not heard of and probably would have slipped under the radar or not for the access to information.
0: The report's not anything as far as I can tell different than what like Michael Chong and others have said in that there were public, statements in ccp affiliated media critical of the chinese critical of the conservative party of canada during the 2020 election or during the previous elections there's some argument that some of those messaging appeared on social media but it's indeterm it's undetermined whether those were planted or spontaneous there was a lot of dislike of the conservative party for yelling at china among chinese canadians as well so there's no smoking gun here. It's the same story, but it comes out of a thing no one had ever heard of, which I think there was a good post, good comment at the end of the CTV story you pulled from an academic who said, if we're going to have this agency, should they not just publish all of their shit instantly?
2: Yeah, that was my big question coming out of here. Like, it's good we found out about it, and there's some confirmation on it. And I will add, there are one of the things being spread was that the conservative several diplomatic relations with Beijing, which is like just straight out not true, and is misinformation. But yeah, if there is a foreign government interfering with Canadian elections, regardless of who that government is, it's I think incumbent upon the government and our security apparatuses and global affairs and all those various agencies to you know do something about it and keeping it as an internal report until it gets FOI'd a year later doesn't really actually help Canadians at all, nor necessarily help address that during the election period. Because this report was written prior to the polls closing and doesn't really seem to have... We don't know for sure what happened behind the scenes. Maybe that'll be a substitute FOI. But it doesn't really seem to have spurred anything, at least publicly, to try and respond to this. And
0: I can get why they maybe didn't release it during the election. Bureaucrats tend, there is a rule that they generally should not be making headlines during the election. It, I can see an argument that it's different when it is an election related issue like this. But why didn't it come out after?
2: Yeah. So yeah, it does leave us with more questions than answers, but uh, I thought it was important to play because it does this kind of provo- means the government was aware of this. And it's not just the, uh, the conservatives being bitter about their loss during the election. And it's definitely going to be an, an ongoing issue going forward with future elections. So hopefully we can learn something from this and be better prepared to maintain the integrity of our elections going forward.
0: Although again, there's no evidence it actually influenced the vote.
2: And that has been PlayGhost. Find links to everything we talked about at playghost.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com/playghost. Our intro music credit is beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. PlayGhost is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. We'll